seated. Let me invite you to take uh, your Bible again, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to our, our text this morning. We're at, uh, uh, nearing the end of Matthew chapter 26. Uh, you can find our uh, passage this morning on page 833 uh, of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, Matthew 26, our text today is uh, verses 57 uh, down to 68. Matthew 26 might be the longest chapter in this book. It's taken a long time to get through it, uh, but there's a lot going on uh, in these uh, few verses. Uh, We are following Jesus in the last uh, few chapters of Matthew uh, and the last day of his life, of his uh, earthly life uh, before his cross. Uh, We think last week doing some some math and text comparison, we've crossed the day from late Thursday night to early Friday morning, and we're still in early Friday morning uh, when everything takes place uh, in our text. We're not even to dawn yet. That's not going to happen until uh, chapter 27. So as Matthew is slowed down, uh, we are slowing down with him uh, and taking each uh, piece at a time uh, as he highlights for us all that happens in the last day of the life of Christ. We pick up uh, verse 57 right after uh, Jesus uh, has been betrayed by Judas and arrested by the servants uh, of the high priest, beginning at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony about Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He said to him, Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? It is sobering, O oh God, to read how they treated your son. It's sobering to read of those who would put him before false witnesses on a false trial for a false verdict and treat him as if he were a false messiah. Guard us, O God, from standing in historical judgment of those who but for your grace we would stand in their very shoes. 
Show us, O God, the work of Your Son, Jesus. The One who endured to the very end. The One who received all of it on our behalf. And yet also, the One who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Show us Christ. We might believe and trust and hope in Him this day. For in His name we pray these things. Amen. If you're a baseball fan, you probably know the name Angel Hernandez. Angel Hernandez is not a famous baseball player. He's not a famous baseball coach. He's not a famous baseball announcer. In fact, he's a famous or infamous baseball umpire. If you're a baseball fan, you dread Angel Hernandez working as the umpire, the referee of your baseball game, because he's been labeled by one newspaper as the worst umpire ever. It's horrible to have this guy umping, refing, working your team's favorite game because you know he's going to call a ball a strike and a strike a ball and you're going to leave that game immensely frustrated. There's nothing quite so frustrating, whether you're a baseball fan or not, but when somebody is in a place of authority, when someone's in the place of an umpire or a referee or getting closer to our text, the place of a judge, and they get it wrong, that is immensely frustrating. It makes us ask the question, who's umpiring the umpires? Who's refereeing the referees? Or in this text, who's judging the judges? Because if they're the ones who are supposed to be in charge, if they're the ones who are supposed to be righteous and the arbitrator of good and evil and right or wrong or ball or strike, and they get it wrong, is there any sense, is there any hope of justice in this world? Because what we see here is the judges get it horribly wrong. Is it fair? Is it right? Is there any justice? In the midst of this trial, which I'm going to show you in a little bit, is a a rushed and sloppy and unjust trial. In the midst of it, we have some words of hope that show us that there is a true judge. Justice will be done. And Jesus is the one who will bring it about when he returns as king. The tension in this text is between earth's rushed judgment And our Lord's patient but true judgment. I want you to see this in Matthew 26 this morning. That after enduring rushed judgment, Jesus will return as king to bring righteous judgment. After he endures rushed judgment, he will return as king to bring about righteous judgment. As we go through these verses, we're just following Matthew as our narrator. He's shining the spotlight on certain decisions, certain actions, certain times and and places. And he shows us here a trial, a fairly quick trial that takes place according to Jewish tradition. Uh, And we kind of walk through it and we're we're used to seeing this rendering of Jesus as guilty. But I want to show you this morning, there is more than meets the eye in this text. On one layer, there's an earthly trial. But there's another layer going on here. And that's the layer of the heavenly trial. Where Jesus is not the one judged, he's the one doing the judging. So let's look at both of those layers. First, we're going to walk through looking at layer one, the earthly trial. What's going on here on the surface of the text? What's going on here in that room uh, early Friday morning? And then we will see the second layer above it all, the heavenly trial. Matthew sets the stage stage for us, excuse me, in verse 57. uh, Those who have seized Jesus... Uh, lead him to the the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. 
It's tricky to piece together exactly what happened in these final hours of the life of Jesus. There are two separate types of trials. There's sort of a religious Jewish trial that takes place. And afterwards, there's a civil uh, Roman trial that takes place. Each of those trials sort of have three different parts to them. So we put them all together. There's like six total scenes of people sitting in judgment over Jesus. The problem is we have four gospel writers and none of them talk about those all six parts of all of those judgment scenes. So we have to kind of stitch together, reading all the gospels, uh, what happened in, in order of events. And some of them we can't even figure out exactly what happened in what order. Here for the trials, it's pretty clear. Matthew doesn't tell us what happens in between the garden and when he arrives at Caiaphas' house. John tells us, first, he goes to the home of a man named Annas. This is Caiaphas' father-in-law. So you can go look it up in John 18. He is the former high priest. So they go over the head of one high priest to the other high priest to get some initial judgment. I mean, guys, has anybody ever gone over your head to your father-in-law, right, before? Maybe your very own wife, right? How does that feel? Right? It's a little annoying, right? So Caiaphas gets to his day in court, but after they've already gone to see his father-in-law, right? They're looking to go to the one that has sort of some relational authority before they get to the one that has the real religious authority. Eventually they come to the home of Caiaphas, or rather, as we read earlier, it's a palace. It's a pretty big house. You can fit a whole lot of people. We'll see in a second. Uh, verse 58 tells us that Peter follows. Uh, this is going to be important next week. Peter's there. Uh, this house is so big, it's got a courtyard. He's in the courtyard. He's waiting as the trial takes place in one of the rooms. So he, he's right there. He's eyewitness to all of this. And that'll be important next week. The trial begins in earnest in verse 59. Uh, and I want to show you a couple of the traits of this earthly trial. I've already said this one. One trait of this trial is it's rushed. It's a rushed trial. I imagine most of you can't tell me exactly what was supposed to happen in a Jewish trial in the ancient Near East. Right? I, I can't tell you what's exactly supposed to happen. But you can read this with an untrained eye and you can think something's not right here. Something feels a little bit rushed. Right? Something feels a little bit slapped together, thrown. They can't even get their witnesses to agree on anything. Right? Look at the irregularities in this trial. Number one is the place where it takes. It's supposed to take place somewhere else, right? It is supposed to happen where the Sanhedrin is supposed to meet in what's called the Hall of the Hewn Stone. This is a room in the, te- in the temple complex. Instead, they're meeting at the, the chief priest's house, right? I mean, imagine if you hear the news about a monumental Supreme Court decision, and it turns out they met at Chief Justice John Roberts' home to make that decision. You'd be thinking, something's not right. Something's not adding up here, right? Secondly, Matthew tells us uh, in verse 59, the chief priest and the whole council uh, were seeking false testimony against Jesus. The whole council, uh, the footnote in my Bible, the Greek is Sanhedrin. You know that word? The Sanhedrin is the gathering of this group of religious uh, leaders and judges. Particularly, there are 70 of them, plus the high priest, so there's 71 of them. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, they're gathered together to cast judgment. But... Do you think they could get all 71 of them there at maybe 3 in the morning? 2 in the morning? 4 in the morning? Whenever this is taking place, it seems unlikely. In fact, they only needed 23 of them there to officially do their business. People think that they're probably 
judges sort of streaming in as they are woken up and gathered together to make this rushed judgment of Jesus. Just the fact that it takes place in the middle of the night is the wrong time for a trial. And not only is it wrong time for an ordinary trial, this is extra bad for a trial that is seeking to put the the death penalty on the one who's being tried. The Jewish rules of the day said if you're seeking capital punishment, it must take at least two days. If you're sentencing someone to die, you at least have to sleep on it, right? These men don't sleep on it. They make the decision in a matter of minutes. Ultimately, what's going on here, all of the irregularities point to the fact that they're not conducting a trial that is seeking to get to the truth, to patiently take time and gather witnesses to arrive at the truth, which a trial is intended to do. No, they have an entirely different motive. Their motive is to put Jesus to death. We saw this many verses ago, back at the beginning of the chapter, where we read that they plotted together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Maybe you've heard the term a kangaroo court. Right? A trial, a court case that is just set up uh, just to show that we're going through the motions. But the, the outcome has already been determined. You don't really care what the witnesses say. You don't really care that the truth comes out or not. You already know what you're going to do. And all these irregularities in this rushed trial point to the truth that they have a predetermined conclusion. This is just a show trial. They're just making it up so it looks like they did justice. When we look at the details, there's no way justice can be served in a rushed trial like this. Not only is it rushed, a second trait of this earthly trial is how sloppy it is. They don't get anywhere near the truth that they purport to be getting at, right? I mean, you think about when you're rushed uh, in the morning getting ready for school, uh, you usually are going to show up in class looking a little bit sloppy, right? You're going to have mismatched socks because you rushed in the morning. There's no way your hair is going to be combed, right? You're, You're a mess when you rush. So true is this trial turns out to be a sloppy mess because of how rushed they are. When they finally get these witnesses to agree, I mean, can you imagine this scene? They're trotting out witness after witness, and no one's agreeing with each other. And they're not thinking to themselves, you know, maybe something's wrong here. <laughs> Finally, they, can, they bring out two witnesses who agree with each other, and what they agree on is to misquote Jesus. Verse 59. They're seeking false testimony against Jesus. That's Matthew's term. The false part. They found none, though they had many false witnesses. Finally, they have two that come forward. You remember in the law, you have to get two witnesses to agree on something. And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. All right, there's no record of Jesus ever saying this. He did talk about the destruction of the temple. He did talk about rebuilding it. He never said that he was the one who was going to destroy it. The closest we get to that comes in John's gospel, where Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So now they've gotten two witnesses to agree that Jesus said something that he didn't say so that he looks guilty of destroying the temple. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said that? You remember what temple he was talking about? He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. John makes that clear in John 2, right after he says it. John clarifies for us. He's talking about the temple of his body. 
If these judges had ears to hear, they would hear something so much more radical than the destruction of a physical temple. They would hear a Savior, a Messiah, standing before them who's going to die and rise again. But again, they're not after the truth. The real threat to their temple, it's not Jesus. The Romans. The very people they're going to work with to turn Jesus over. They miss the truth before their eyes in this accusation of Jesus. They miss the truth again when they finally ask Jesus to respond. Now here's another irregularity. Jesus should have had somebody to defend him. They should have allowed time to have a a defendant lawyer stand and plead the case of Jesus. Instead, uh, he's there alone. And the high priest says to him, verse 62, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now you know why he remained silent. Because the Bible said he was going to remain silent. We read in the book of Isaiah, The prophet says in chapter 53 that like a sheep before his shearers, he remains silent. His silence testifies that he's the very one that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. If they had ears to hear, if they had eyes to see, that would have triggered something in their minds. Oh, he's silent for a reason. He's fulfilling something in his silence. The truth is Jesus was there on this false show trial and he wasn't there to defend himself. So he had nothing to say. He was silent in order that he might defend us. In order that he might go all the way and stand as the sacrificial lamb in our place. But the judges, in their rush, don't have ears to hear. A third witness that bears Uh, out that they ignore is the response of Jesus. When the high priest is fed up and he adjures, he commands Jesus to take a vow by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. This answer has confounded uh, commentators, right, for centuries. It's sort of a veiled, bizarre response. It's the same thing he said to to Judas, if you look over and uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 25, when Judas asked if he was the one that was going to betray Jesus, Jesus said, you have said so. What's going on uh, with this answer? It's an affirmative answer. He's agreeing, yes, I am the Christ, the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of God. But he answers in this odd way, as if to say, you put it that way, but I wouldn't put it that way. Or those are your words, They're not my words. Or what you mean by those words is not what I mean by those words. What's wrong? I mean, they say things that Jesus has said about himself, right? Uh, they, They say, or he says, tell us if you are the Christ. He is the Messiah. Matthew's shown us that throughout the book. He is the Christ, the Messiah of God. He is the very Son of God. Again, Matthew shows us that and and argues that. But Jesus is saying back to them, essentially, that's true, but that's not enough. And I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think I'm going to be. I'm not here to destroy the stones of the temple. I'm not here to lead a violent physical revolt against the oppressors. No, I'm here to suffer silently. I'm here as the peaceful sufferer. I'm here as the fulfillment 
of Isaiah's suffering servant. I'm not who you think that I am. That plays out at the end of the passage when they declare him guilty and they begin to mock him. And they mock him and they spit on him and they strike him. And they say, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? What are they saying? They're saying, if you really are the Messiah, you should know who is that hit you. And you would say something. Essentially, they're mocking Jesus by saying, defend yourself. Say something. Do something. Prophesy to show us that you're Messiah. And Jesus says, my answer to whether I am Messiah or not is silence. Is suffering. Is enduring. They're looking for a Christ to lead a violent revolt. He shows us he is the true Christ, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who dies on behalf of his people. That's a Messiah they're not ready for. That's a Messiah they can't see. That's a Messiah in their sin they don't even want. You see in their rushed judgment how sloppy it is that Jesus is showing them over and over and over again who he is. And they keep missing it. That leads to the ultimate problem with this earthly trial. It's rushed, it's sloppy, but it's unjust. They they condemn the wrong person. They condemn an innocent man. They charge him with blasphemy. He's not guilty of blasphemy. They sort of make up all these different ways that he's he's guilty. Uh, They then sentence him to death a death that they don't have the authority to bring about. They have to entrust him later to the Romans because they can't put him to death. They actually have created a charge that's going to look threatening in the eyes of Pilate and the Romans so that they will carry out their desire to put him to death. What stands out loud and clear from these verses that describe the earthly trial is that Jesus is not guilty. Any judge in their right mind that took this case on appeal would throw it out instantly, right? All the irregularities, all the witnesses that they missed, the wrong judgment that they rendered would be thrown out even in their fixed kangaroo court show trial. Even there, Jesus isn't proved to be guilty. In fact, it works the very opposite. There miscarriage of justice, their total farce of a court, their failure does one thing. It proclaims not guilty, but innocence. The only thing it proves is the very opposite of what it intends to prove. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is not guilty of blasphemy. He is calm as the suffering servant. And he, indeed, is innocent. As their little earthly trial, their little play trial comes to a close, the real trial, the big trial, is only beginning. I want you to see the second layer here, the heavenly trial. The heavenly trial and what it shows us about Jesus. Every now and then you get these uh, viral videos that come out and they have a celebrity who's been caught doing something wrong. Right? They've been speeding. They've tried to skip the line at the grocery store. Right? Someone pulls out their phone and starts recording. 
uh, and they're confronted by the manager, the security guard, the policeman, and the celebrity eventually says what? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how important I am? And usually the cop's like, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> the manager has no idea who they are. They have such an inflated view of their own importance. Don't you know who I am? You would never do that if you knew who I was. Well, this is Jesus's don't you know who I am moment in verse 64. Without all the pompous, arrogant stuff of the celebrities of our day, right? Here is who I really am. You want an answer, high priest Caiaphas? You want to answer Sanhedrin? Here is who I really am. Verse 64. But I tell you, you think I'm just an earthly Messiah to lead a political revolution? You think I'm a son of God, another word for sort of a, a, an earthly prince? That's who you think I am? Yeah, I am that, but I'm a lot more. I tell you, from now on, that means after this trial, after this day, you're not going to see me like this anymore. I'm not going to be in your custody. I'm not going to be betrayed and handed over. I'm not going to be mocked and spit upon and slapped. From now on, here's how you're going to see me. You will see the Son of Man. Now that doesn't sound as powerful to us as the Son of God, does it? Son of God sounds a lot more powerful. That sort of, we think Son of God means divinity. Son of man means his humanity. That's not what Jesus means at all. He's actually quoting this old term from the prophet Daniel that speaks of one like a son of man who's going to come and usher in and bring in God's eschatological kingdom, his end time kingdom ushered into a fallen world. Who does that? The son of man. It's the term that Jesus use, uses to talk about when he judges to talk about his return as king, to talk about his power and his authority and his glory. It is a term, to put it mildly, not to be messed with. He is the son of man. He goes on, seated at the right hand of power. That's a description, of course, of God the Father. Power, describing him at the right hand of power is the place of power. Power's place of power, right? sitting at the right hand. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God. We've already seen him talk about this. Back in chapter 22, he talked about how he was the son of David. In fact, he was great David's greater Lord. He is the one to whom God has said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God's right hand, the place of power. He is now in this pathetic earthly trial taking place in the middle of the night in Caiaphas's house. Yeah, it looks like he's under their power. But guess what? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. He is at God's right hand from now on. In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, your pathetic little court, as if he's saying will from now on be under the rule, authority, and power of the Son of Man on high. And he is coming on the clouds of heaven. He actually goes back to Daniel to get this idea. Jesus returning on the clouds of heaven. We heard like eight sermons on that in chapter 24 and 25. Here he hits that point again. He is returning 
with the glory and the power and the might of His Father from heaven. And He is coming to judge, to judge the living and the dead. Here's the truth. He is not a guilty, blaspheming, pretending Messiah under the religious authority of the Sanhedrin. No, He is the King of the universe. He is the judge of the whole world. And yes, He is seated now, but soon He is coming to judge. Soon they will have their day in court. And the high priest tears his robes at this. He's furious. He's enraged. Buddy, you should be terrified, right? You should not be angry at this. You should be terrified about the anger of the judge who is to come. You see, when Jesus answers who he is in verse 24, he flips the whole scene. He says, I'm in your courtroom right now, but soon you will be in mine. And let me tell you, that heavenly trial looks nothing like this earthly trial. The earthly trial is rushed. The heavenly trial is patient. And that's kind of a problem that we have, isn't it? That's the hardest part for us. We read Matthew 26, and every step of the way we think, Jesus, do something. Judas is about to betray you. Stop him. They're coming to meet you in the garden. Go somewhere else. They're drawing their swords. Call down those legions from heaven to attack. Break the bonds. Just leave Jesus. Every step of the way, we are frustrated at the, the patience of Jesus. Why isn't he doing anything? We think that now sometimes, don't we? We face injustice in our world. We see it personally. We see it globally. And we think, why is he not doing anything? He tells us himself that he is seated. Seated does not mean inactivity. He's not propped back with his feet up on the desk, just waiting. Seating is the place where the judge is. The judge sits and court is in session. Jesus is in charge. We've seen that he is in charge of every step of his betrayal, of his arrest, of his trial. He's in charge every step of the way. And today, when we see injustice in our personal lives or in the world around us, we know that he's at the right hand of power. He's on his throne. We just sang whatever God ordains is right. We sang that for this very reason. Because here's the hard calling of the Christian life. That as our Lord endures hardship patiently, so too do we. And we are never going to have a hardship like this. We're never going to have to wait as long as this. But we walk the path following Christ. We too endure hardship patiently. We want rushed judgment, don't we? But our Lord's judgment is patient. Because of that, it's not sloppy, it's thorough. They rush their judgment and they miss everything. Our Lord's patient judgment sees everything. He sees and he knows the truth. Here's the great irony of this text. They think they're judging Jesus, and they are. But all they're doing is bearing witness against themselves that he will use as evidence for his judgment. 
They think it's over when they judge him. My friends, it's only beginning. Our rejection and condemnation of Jesus only serves to witness against us in his heavenly trial. I say that not, not, not to scare you, but to warn you. You might think, yeah, I have come to the conclusion that God's not real and Jesus was just a person and he's done nothing for me and I don't trust him. And for you, that might close the door. You might think, that's it. It's over. I've made my decision. It's done. But these guys and every one of us will answer for that decision or answer for that judgment. God's not rushing through anything. He is thorough. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows our words. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motivations. The thorough judgment of the heavenly trial. And that might sound hard, but it leads to the third and real difference between the earthly trial and the heavenly trial. The earthly trial here is unjust. The heavenly trial is nothing but just. It is the ultimate vindication of justice. It is so anger-producing when we see innocent people condemned. No innocent person will be condemned in the heavenly trial. It's even worse when we see the guilty walking free. No guilty will walk free according to the justice of God. He will put every wrong to right. He will punish the sinner and He will vindicate the innocent. He will bring about all of the injustices will become fully and finally under the judgment of God just. You've heard in in history of what's known as the Nuremberg Trials. The Nuremberg Trials were court cases that took place in the city of Nuremberg in Germany following World War II. What they were were trials of accusing the leading Nazis in Germany who perpetrated the worst of the war crimes. There are trials against them. And they took a while. And there was a long wait. But ultimately, those Nuremberg trials held the guilty accountable. And finally, in an earthly sense, justice was served after the long wait. There's a very real sense for us as we watch Jesus endure injustice and as we endure we know with confidence that after the long wait, justice indeed will be served. So how do we tie these two threads together? How do we, how do we end this two-part sermon with looking at an earthly trial that's unjust and a heavenly trial that's nothing but just? A couple thoughts as we close. Number one, if the earthly trial was in fact just, then Jesus would actually be guilty. If they rendered true justice and declared that Jesus was guilty, that would be the worst news of Scripture. That would end us without a Savior. If this earthly trial indeed testified to His guilt, 
But it's so wrong, it's so backwards, it's so upside down that we can look at this earthly trial and we can say with confidence, it doesn't testify to his guilt, it testifies that he's innocent. It's so backwards, it tells the truth. The innocence of Jesus. That leads to a, a worse problem. And that is, if the heavenly trial is patient and thorough and just, then where do we stand? Where do we stand in the heavenly courtroom? The truth is, we all stand condemned. We weren't there. Maybe we wouldn't have done this. Maybe we'd in fact be hiding and denying with Peter somewhere, right? But we are guilty in our sin of rejecting God. And he holds sinners accountable in his heavenly courtroom. And what we need is someone who is innocent to stand in our place. And though they had no idea they were doing it, this very kangaroo court is serving up for us the innocent Messiah to stand in our place, to stand condemned before God's court of heavenly justice. This is the gospel according to these two trials. In our place, the innocent man stands condemned. In our place, condemned he stood. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He stood in our place on the cross. He stands in our place resurrected from the grave. So that those who are guilty are freed in Christ. The question that we all should ask is not what do you think of God? Maybe that's a good question. It's not the greatest question. The real question is what does God think of you? What does God think of you? Because when we close the Bible today, Jesus is not on trial anymore. We are. And our hope is only in the innocent man who was condemned to die so that guilty men and women are set free to live. What does God think of you? You trust in Jesus and he thinks of you and he counts you as innocent. The trial is over, but our trial is still coming. Put your faith in Christ and though you are guilty, you will be counted now and forever as innocent in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Lord, how we grieve and mourn this worst of earthly injustices imaginable. How we grieve men who are in a place to judge who would condemn your very Son and our Lord unto death. And Lord, how through this, Though we grieve, we rejoice that this is your means of providing a Savior for us. Your means of providing a Lamb for us. Lord, I pray that you would convict every one of us that we in our own strength and our own righteousness cannot or will not ever be able to stand before your throne of judgment. But in Christ, we stand and we rest before the throne of grace. Lord, grant us that assurance that in him the guilty are counted innocent, for in our place condemned he stood. We praise you. We adore you. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.